Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Check out planacademy.com today for free sample lessons and tons of free video. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by JustDo.com. JustDo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and JustDo is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out JustDo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, project people. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast. I am Val Matthews, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dale Fung. How's it going, people? In this episode, we get to talk to Justin Rice. Great to have you on the pod, mate. Thanks, Val. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. It's been a long-time listener, and um, yeah, it's good to actually jump on here and talk to you guys. Absolutely, mate. We're going to get right into it soon. On this pod, we'll be talking to Justin about his career in projects. But before we do, Dale, do you have Justin's bio? I don't. Uh, this whole pod is Justin's bio. Um, so nice. it's your CV, bare naked, on a podcast, Justin. Um, I hope you're ready. How are you feeling? I'll try and remember it. Yeah. <laughs> you're not that old. I'm sure you can remember it. <laughs> no, it is 7 a.m. though on a Saturday. So. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but, you know, uh, myself, yourself and, and Val worked together on in a, a few different capacities before. So, you know, we, we kind of yeah. know each other fairly well, but actually we don't know your full, full history. Um, mm -hmm. And the little bits I do know about you, we actually have different paths into project controls and PMO. Um, yet when we often spoke about various topics and subjects, we shared similar views. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated um, about you was that we could have really good debates around topics. And that's great for, for controls in general, I think, because a lot of gray areas, we often joke it's 50, 50 shades of gray. Um, <laughs> and I have fond I memories, <laughs> fond memories of, of, of those debates. And I, I learned a lot from that as well. Um, but before we go into some of those uh, spicy stories, I guess, along the way, <laughs> can you take us back to kind of perhaps maybe even school days, if it started as early as that, did you always know that you wanted to get into projects? Was it, was it something that, that, that um, you set out to do or did you mm. start off like perhaps many of us um, thinking oh, I'm going to be this or that, and then fell into the controls planning PMO space? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's kind of a bit of both, I think. 
um, as you touched on there. I will, I think going back, I didn't necessarily know I wanted to go into project controls or planning. I didn't even know what that was. Um, but I knew growing up that I had, I guess, two parents that were heavily involved in projects for most of their life being that not for work purposes, but I had a, I had a dad that was very much a handyman and I had a mum that was very crafty and like every other weekend was a project, be it, you know, doing landscaping out the back or, you know, building a pergola or fixing a boat or whatever the case. So there was always, there was also always elements of projects that we like would do, I guess, growing up. And that's probably the earliest bit that got me sort of interested in projects. I think my natural tendencies led towards being a tradesman to start with because of that I think I was good with my hands liked working on things had a a real interest for mechanical um, objects so it actually took me more down the path of um, took me in that direction so I ended up coming out of school and joining Qantas as an aircraft maintenance engineer apprentice which was actually a really good uh, I guess basis for learning the practical aspects of things so uh, working mainly on aircraft engines let's, let's, stop, there. Doing... let's stop, stop there briefly what made you yeah. go into into that what was it just the opportunity did you want to get into aircraft specifically yeah. or was it the engineering that that grabbed you so i think to to be fair at the time i probably went i love being a mechanic but i don't really want to work on cars right <laughs> It sounds so simple, but at the time I was kind of like, I, I can work on cars whenever I want. I want to try something that's different. I want to try something that's bigger. Um, why not jumbo jets? A, <laughs> yeah, why not jumbo jets? I, I like the sound of them. Um, so, yeah, I think it was more that aspect that took me down. It was very intriguing, very interesting, something I didn't know anything about and something I couldn't learn just um, being at home like, working working on my own car sort of thing so it took me down that path more out of interest than of um you know a real passion for aircraft so yeah and as i said really really good apprenticeship took me across you know thermodynamics aerodynamics um, fluid mechanics all those kind of different aspects of you know mechanical engineering I suppose, which is really, really useful. And it, it gave me a good understanding of how things go together, I guess, practically. Um, which and, and working on aircrafts, I've, I've, I know people that have hmm. studied aircraft as well before. And those people, well, the person I, I, I've spoken to before, they were quite actually scared and afraid of flying. Was that the same for you, knowing what could go <laughs> wrong? I think, no, I, I don't, I don't actually have a fear of flying, but. I have seen, you know, you sit in, I, I worked in test cells quite a lot when I was um, in that role and you see how many times little things fail in the test cell but then you quickly realise that how many things there are to cover it and go on top of that and things just keep working. So I think it kind of had the opposite effect on me that there's so much redundancy built into these um, engines, these components of aircraft that it didn't, it didn't really bother me in the end. I think they're 
there's been a hundred years of learning and the aviation industry is really, really good at learning. Um, whenever something goes wrong, it's very high profile and it's really dug into what happens. So I think it's come a long way and, you know, no, I don't think I share that fear of mine. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's great, um, great to hear. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and perhaps we can go into that a little bit later, you know, perhaps – you know the the um the, the lessons to be learned from from the aviation industry of how it's advanced should be brought into other project environments but i don't want to side you yeah. too much from from yeah. your your um your career so so mm-hmm. you were in this apprenticeship and then what happened next yeah so i i kind of that was mainly on commercial aircraft so um boeing 747 767s for Qantas, and then at the end of my apprenticeship, I kind of had a decision to make um, and where I wanted to be placed, I guess, within Qantas. Um, and they give you this choice, but it's not really a choice, so to speak. So I kind of rebelled and said, well, I want to go to your defense section kind of thing. And I want to get out of, you know, this general you know, maintenance area. I want to do your defense engines because they had a number of contracts with um, the Royal Australian Air Force, mainly around the Hercules and the um, Prime Minister's jet. So I got I got placed within a company, like a sub-division of Qantas called Qantas Defence Services at the time, which, yeah, so then I started working on the, the Hercules C-130 engines, which was a, a lovely change and went back about, I don't know, 60 years in technology to something that was really basic and raw and had a big propeller on the front of it and makes a lot of sound. Um, So then I I started working there and that was kind of great because it's a much smaller engine. I got to see all the different aspects of these these engines and learned a hell of a lot in, in really quick succession and sort of built my, I guess, experience up very quickly. And at the time, I think I kind of went, I've stopped studying my apprenticeship. I'm now working on engines, but I want I didn't really want to stop studying either. So at the same time, I started going to TAFE at night, doing business studies um, and engineering studies. So I did a bit of both over the next four, five years, um, whilst also just working away. Um, and that time I kind of built up my sort of tech career to what you would classify as like a leading hand or foreman, I suppose, in the um so I started looking after a, a team at like 20, 24, 25, looking after people that had been in the industry for 40 years actually. One guy had do the same job for the last 40 years, inspecting wow. inspecting components, just sitting there making sure that there wasn't any you know, corrosion or cracks or anything and on a one type of engine. So that was his whole career pretty much was 40 years of looking at these these components. He knew it very well, like, don't get me wrong. But, yeah, it was quite an interesting challenge at that point to go into a uh, – to get put into a career where I guess I was, I was trying to manage these people that had far, far, far more experience, specialised experience than I ever could ever would did, um, did you have any do they did they give you any training like is that where your training started in leadership or or was it just you learned on the job yeah it was more it was more learning on the job i guess from 
obviously from managers that I'd worked with and um, people I looked up to and no, that at that point, not really. I don't think that it is probably a, a place where more focus needs to put on from organisations looking after these tech like people apprenticeships is is these roles are quite important to have like a, a team leader that's very much people focused very good at managing people um, but no there wasn't there wasn't a lot of support in that in that instance um, from the organisation which was a bit of a shame but you learn as you do and. That I did um, through a few mistakes. Obviously, as as I go, I know you guys have talked about on this podcast. You fail, you fail early, um, and I did, and that that kind of happened often. And I think that's how I learned how to deal with people a bit better and in a management sort of role. Um, so that that was that's kind of where my career got to in. Um, in terms of that trades role, um, once I got to that point, I kind of I had studied a fair bit. As I said, I was doing business and engineering at night, and then we won a new contract for the for the company called on the um, P three, um, not P three, sorry, the Pilatus. Um, so they did the roulettes, you know, the flying kind of aerobatic aircraft mm. that you see yeah. from the Royal Air Force. So we won the contract for the engines for them, which is really great, and they needed a planner for it. And this is where my my life kind of started as a planner. Um, so at that point, yeah, as I said, I'd probably I'd found that I was at the top of my trades <coughs> game, moved into that and thought I'd take on something new. So it was essentially that role was a, uh, very raw planning role. So it was project manager slash planner, I would say, in some instance, where I was I had to schedule all the engines and components that were coming in and out of the um, workshop. I had to liaise with clients. I had to liaise with stakeholders, uh, sorry, stakeholders, suppliers, because it was well, more of in a prime um, contract where we didn't do a lot in-house, but we shipped a lot out to the US, Canada, um, around Australia. To when be was this? How, how long ago was this, roughly? Yeah, so I think that started in around 2010, 2000, no, probably a bit earlier, actually, 2008, 2009, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fair while ago. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of took on that role and learned the organization didn't have big established projects. That's not what they did. They did maintenance. So I kind of had to start creating things from the bottom up. Kind of, We got Microsoft Project and started playing with Microsoft Project at the time, um, working out how I could understand my resources and my cash flow for the project, I had to, you know, set up all the phasing of trying to get the work in from another organization. Obviously, we won the contract. It came from somewhere else. So there was a big phasing plan that I had to run. Um, yeah, just creating all these 
things in place to to try and manage this role and it was without any idea of what project controls really was at the time so you know mm. yeah so, so really what, interesting what got you through that then how did you how did you deal with that challenge what was your thinking yeah so i guess during oh sorry i should say by then i was kind of studying at uni at night as well so and i picked up one module in my uni degree in business and commerce for um, project management and they kind of had run me through high level you know this is how this is how our forward pass backwards pass of a project schedule looks like this is how you resource your schedule um, this is how you create a WBS all those you know really high level project controls planning um, techniques which was which was great it was like a crash course in you know 10 weeks or something of how how everything works so i kind of just started applying them as i said never used never ever used uh, microsoft project so got on with that just started playing with it and working out what everything did i guess and and then mm. you know worked out how i could resource load it then worked out pretty quickly that you no know, i could put costs in there as well and i could track you know what it cost me to <laughs> to um to carry out the work in actuals and then, you know, then I could change my forecast going forward. And it was, it was a unique one where we resources were quite um, scarce in our organization because it wasn't big enough to resource up a huge amount of people. So we had, you know, one, two people dedicated to the project and we had to then rely on others when we had peaks and troughs in the organization. So then resourcing became really, really critical for me because I needed to know that when something came in, I had the people there to do it and I could borrow, beg, steal from someone else. But it was better to show show them what my needs were in the next, you know, two, three months, four months and, and then get that early buy-in of what I needed rather than just coming at the last second to, to work out, you know, what resources I could get. Um, so yeah, it was more through just just playing with these tools, working with people, um, that I got a feel for how planning specifically worked. Um, but also, yeah, as I said, a bit of project management, being the client facing and supplier facing um, resource in that project. It just kind of built up from there, really. Um, so that. That role was, you know, a few years of my life just, you know, and that was more just learning at my own pace, which was really, really unique. I kind of got to a point where I couldn't learn a lot more from the organisation. I felt not in that role. There wasn't a lot of support down the project controls. Not that I still, I don't think I knew what project controls really was or project mm -hmm. As a, as a PMO offering, I think that was a bit later in my career. I was still sort of like, this is just a project management role. This is, you know, what I have to do. So I got to that point where I felt like there was definitely more but didn't actually know what, um, what that was. And in saying that, that was part of it. The other part was I think I got, I got to a point where I wanted a different position. There was a management position that went up in the same organization so it was a 
like an operations manager, I think. I felt I'd been groomed for it, I think, at the time. But then, um, you know, I, I kind of probably didn't do as well as I should have in the interview. Another one, fail, fail and understand what we did, but didn't do so great in the interview. What, what um, did you, what do you pick up out of that? So you say you didn't do too well specifically, like what would be, what would you redo? What would you do over if you had the chance to go back for that job again? Yeah, I'd probably go in much more prepared than I did. I think <laughs> I went in yeah. <laughs> a bit overconfident, um, thinking that nobody else would get this sort of a situation. Mm. I didn't. I didn't engage the. I'd engage the audience that well. I didn't understand the, the need for that kind of deep preparation. I, I think it was my first kind of serious interview I'd, I'd had since getting an apprenticeship. So it's not something that I was, you know, well, versed in. Um, so I didn't know what to. I didn't really know what to think about. I didn't know how to prepare myself for it. And it was kind of at a, it was at a time where those situational based questions were the whole thing. And to me, yeah. they're like, I don't know if they're, they don't suit my style for some reason. I get into them and I find them very difficult at the time. I think I'm more of an introverted person. So on the spot thinking sometimes doesn't work. I need that time to sort of take in the question, digress, like, understand it for myself, come back and speak. So sometimes they're quite a difficult situation for me to engage in and, and therefore I do really need to prepare myself for those kind of styles of questions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was a – it was definitely an eye-opener on what I had to do with um, in, in interviews. So I kind of – I took that. Um, I'd like to say I learned from it, but – Still don't like interviews to this day, but you know, I, I'm I usually go in much more prepared and much more, um, you know, I have an understanding of what I want to get across and how to try to engage in these questions a bit better and a few yeah. techniques, I suppose, to try to try to do that for myself. Well, hopefully, hopefully, this you can use this podcast as your CV and, and yeah. if anyone asks the interview, they, you can <laughs> just send them a just link. Send a link, absolutely, <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. So, so how long ago was that? That was so we, we went 2010. You were there for a couple of years. 2012. Yeah, so 2012, 13, I think. Probably 13. It was around then. Um, so yeah, I had a good three years in that planning role. Then this happened. I stayed. So yeah, at the end of that, didn't get the role. Obviously. Um, I was a bit annoyed about that, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. And I then sort of felt like there wasn't too many moves I could make in the organisation, mm -hmm. which was a bit of a shame because I guess at Qantas I'd been there for 12 years from the apprenticeship to then. So it had to, you know, it, it was a bit tough. And we actually lost probably the major contract. As I said, I started working on the C-130 engines when I moved over there. Unfortunately, we lost that contract um, probably at the end of 2013, early 14. Um, so then they offered redundancies out. By that time, I'd kind of gone, you know, 
I think I'm at the the ceiling in this organization. I don't feel like I'm going much further. So I had to cut ties, unfortunately, um, which was a real shame. And, you know, even to this day, every now and then, you know, you think about that that role and that career that I first had and the, those yeah, the, 12 the years of yeah. the what ifs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I look at it and like for the better and sort of say, I, I think it was the right move at the time that I, these things happen for a reason and sort of chose that let's move on <laughs> situation. So that was all right. So I ended up finishing up in October 14 in Qantas or by then actually I didn't mention it had been taken over by Northrop Grumman which was a big American organization mm-hmm. um, they'd sort of started to come in and, and change a few things and that was fine but they weren't didn't have a big I guess presence yet in Australia so it didn't really change my kind of view on on how to how to proceed anyway so I left in October um, then moved, it was actually my 30th birthday, I think, in November. So I went away, went to the US, did a big trip, and I think I was sitting on the beach in Hawaii and I got a phone call about a a, um, a role with a company called Talus in Sydney. And I kind of went, well, this sounds interesting. I don't even know how to pronounce that, but, you know, I'll... Did you call it sales? Yeah, I started with sales. <laughs> I think we so all it's, do, it's, don't it's, we? Yeah, it's all yeah, about T-H-A-L-E-S, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I went away, for, went away got, in, got the call in Hawaii, and two weeks later I had an interview with them um, for a project planning position. As I said, still wasn't quite aware what, you know, what any of this PMO stuff was. I was quite raw in what I knew. Um, so met with the, the hiring manager, great guy, Bruce, I think what his name was, um, classic Australian name. I was about to say absolutely, that. <laughs> absolutely. Great guy. He, he sort of brought me on, took me under his wing and taught me a lot in a, in a short amount of time about what, what PMO and project controls really is. And, Talus, it's a great organization for project controls. Um, they have a long, long history of learning and project controls and they have internal processes that, you know, are just very robust. So I quickly took to that. I, I think I'm a, a natural learner in these kind of scenarios and just started, you know, learning everything I could from their procedures, their you know, their learnings in projects and they threw me into an area, um, all defense. Well, sorry, I'll say 90% defense. Um, but it was all smaller type projects where there was only as the project planner, you were responsible for the planning, the risk, the cost control, the, you know, change control, all of those all of those aspects of project controls you were responsible for as a project planner, which was a really great environment. And I had a, I had a good mix of different projects. So I had things like big, um, it was mainly on simulators and avionics. So I had some big maintenance contracts that were like to 
to repair the heads-up displays for helicopters. We had um, simulators that we we're building um, that I was looking after. Both we had upgrades of um, simulators for the um, LAVs, the tanks, the mini tanks. So that yep. was pretty cool. They came in a, like a little, a little shipping container, and in, you jumped inside, and you could run around and you know fire fire um, the cannon and things like that. That was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, there was all these like smaller projects that I could then you know really learn my craft in project controls. So if, if, we just, if we just pause there, um, yep. so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of timeline, what you're five years into now your planning slash controls career yeah. by, by my count. Um, mm-hmm. Up until this point in time, was it was it all just informal training from, you know, those uh, experts and mentors before you or did you have any sort of formal classroom type training? Was it just experience? Yeah, so the formal aspect Honestly, up until about 2014, I think I finished my um, degree in business and commerce and I got a small taste of what project management was in that one unit. So it was all informal up till that point. So um, where did you get um, outside sort of uh, inspiration from in terms of was there any any resources that, that people can kind of go to that don't have the... You know, so so a lot of organisations these mm. days are putting something in more formal, but there's still a lot out there that that don't. And I'm just wondering, you know, you, you spent five years very successfully learning your craft, um, mm-hmm. and and you had great people around you. But were there external resources that people go to online, or perhaps that 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 particularly helped you? Um, at the time, I can't really remember too many that I that I had. It was more. No, I think I – there probably is. And at the moment there is. There's absolutely some great websites I think people can definitely go to, I think. Um, but at the time, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually use a lot of Googling, so to speak, I think, to learn. I, I took the learnings, I think, from my formal training, so in business and commerce, like understanding accounting, um, and management reporting and things like that. In terms of cost, I took a general understanding of what I'd learned through managing teams to sort of go, what would I want to know about resourcing? What would I want to know about, you know, um, time pressures? Like, you know, what has to happen when? Like, uh, you know, it was very practical kind of application of probably everything that I'd picked up with across the previous you know eight years or something like that so it was kind of like all those those trade practical techniques that i had that did me quite successfully up to that point just came into this point where planning made sense and pmo kind of made sense without knowing what it was so yeah not i didn't use a lot of um informal kind of learnings at that point in time. I think we're in a much better place now than what we were then for those um, discussions. So, that, yeah. that in itself, though, is a true, truly remarkable lesson, right? Because even if you don't have access, and as we know we do today, but if, even mm. if you don't think you do, um, one, someone could say, well, you were, you were lucky that you had the right people 
um, and environment to learn in. But two, you had to go yeah. and take those opportunities. You had to apply yourself. So, you know, I, th- I think I think sometimes these days we, and we've spoken before on, on previous pods that we expect too much from companies to just sort of give us training and, you know, um, make us good. <laughs> but um, yeah. And that's why I wanted to pause there a little bit because I was listening and I was fascinated by how you progressed and just wondered how you'd accumulated the information. And I think that's a really important lesson to those listening to that. Actually, you don't need to do the formal type training. You can actually no. gain it. It's out there. You have to go and seek it though. That That's the, the other side of the bargain, right? You can't just yeah. assume. No, absolutely. I think I... I've never relied on organizations to make, to train me in what I need to know. I've always taken that on my own shoulders. I think that's my burden to bear and it's not even a burden. I actually quite enjoy it. Like, so it's something that if I need to know it, I'm going to go out and learn it. Um, Be it through my own understanding of things, be it wrong. As we said, the amount of times I've done things wrong and, gone down the wrong path and being directed, redirected, but that's learning. I think, as I said, I a lot of how I learn is previous experience. So just going back, those, those techniques, those skills that I've built over the years, they're all still useful, I guess, and totally different career. Absolutely. Um, one was working on aircraft engines the others planning out um different projects that at times had no relation to aircraft engines but the techniques are there they're called something different they're not in the forefront of what you do but you engage with them all the time and and it's just about taking some of those and actually thinking about them and how you would then practically apply them so that that's i think that's the main way i i learned Obviously, going like building my skills through theory in the background in in business helped. Um, so understanding a bit more about you know all the the traditional business techniques was of of assistance. But you know at the same time, it's just taking those skills that you learn along the way and and applying them. Yeah, that's really really useful uh, because I think. We've done a few of these now, Dale, haven't we? These these pods and and talking to so many people from around the world. There's a there's a common factor I think that's it's emerging, and it's this. And it's not. I thought it used to be. I thought it used to be mechanical mind people. You know, people who had um, a way of taking ambiguous content and then structuring it. But I actually think it's a lot more simpler than that. I actually think it's this this drive of curiosity. Because I was just listening to the way you were talking yeah. then. And you're really talking about you're, you're framing questions in order to come up with a problem. So I guess that's the mechanical mindset is if you're troubleshooting an engine, for example, then you go, well, okay, well, what do I need to do? I need to do this. But you're also applying that yeah. to project management, which is really interesting. So, or project controls for that matter. So for example, hmm. you say, well, what do I want? What, what would I want to see from resources? What would I want to see from this and that? And actually, I think that's a really valuable component of most people that I've met you know, Dale and yourselves and, and, and myself around how you fix a problem without necessarily knowing the solution straight away. And yeah. I think that's a really good way if you're not really, if you haven't been trained formally, that's a really mm-hmm. good way to, what do you used to call it? Like a, almost like a third perspective, Dale. 
but like look at look at it from another side or another perspective and understand what do you think you need and then work towards that something like that but it, it all starts and stems from curiosity yeah absolutely absolutely like i think that's everything that i've kind of done in my career has been about that learning like understanding mm. what what it is that i wanted to to get out of something um and probably slightly different actually you just reminded me of something i guess when when you were just discussing that is another thing that i learned early in my trade that's probably driven a lot of how i learn and it goes back to that failure but it's about i guess in the aircraft industry if something goes wrong nobody gets you know told off but as long as you come forward and, and sort of admit what what it is that happened. So, you know, if you if you make a mistake, that's not the end of the world. It's not telling somebody that the mistake's been made. That's when things go wrong. Mm. So there's a real humbleness about that. And there's a real like it's drilled into you as a as an apprentice from the very start. You know, if something if something happens, that's fine. You know, I've I've dropped a component of an aircraft that was worth $35,000. And when you're getting paid $250 a week as an apprentice, it was like, you know, yeah, I thought it was the end of the world. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I'll be paying this back for years. But, you know, in that, in that point, it's that ownership that, you know, I dropped this, look, and see it, this happened. It was on the side of the bench, whatever the case, it dropped it's worth 30 grand. We need to, we need to go through the process and fix this. So I think that also has helped learning along the way. I think it's about not just telling somebody else, but it, it gives you that self-reflection as well. Um, Cause if you just wash it off, you know, if you just dust it off and say, Oh, she'll be right. Kind of thing. Mm. You don't learn anything and you put everybody else in a bit more danger. So by saying it was my fault, it was my mistake, you kind of then go, what would I have done differently? How would I fix this? Um, and internalizing some of those thoughts and then learning from them. So I think that's also still a technique that I still use, I guess. I Like anybody that knows me, if I do something wrong, I'm the first one to tell them that I've done something wrong and admit to it. But usually I won't do it again. So that's always a... <laughs> Or if I do, <laughs> uh, pull me up on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, so, you're, so you're at Talus. You're in this yeah. planning role. Yeah. So I got this this planning role. Um, again, not not too sure what what any of this PMO stuff was, but now getting a a real vast experience on on all different aspects of project controls, which was absolutely great. Had a few really good resources around me. Um, the guys at Talos have known their stuff for a very long time. As I said, they, they, and they took me under their wing. They really brought me up to speed in what, how to structure WBSs properly, how to then have those conversations around packages of scope, getting them put into the right, correct order that make logical sense to, being able to like craft my art in scheduling in making sure that you you get the best out of people and you get the correct information and you can 
you know, set up a project that's robust um, in time and resources, but also a lot about how we report on those projects and what people want to see, you know, the, the outputs to this. Because I think project controls is one of those environments where it's all well and good for us to do our job correctly and govern the project, but that doesn't mean a thing unless you can give the project managers and the, the project engineers and the stakeholders in that project the information they require to make decisions at the right point in time. So I think that's where I then, you know, started to learn a lot more in that how do I, what's the messages that I need to get across to senior management, to project management, to, you know, just the guys doing the work. What do I need to be able to tell them? How do I then report on that? And how does that change the way I do my work in the background? So it's that, it's that learning cycle um, around doing, you know, getting the feedback, going back, changing what I do to, to then suit and working with that. And as I said, I had, I think at the time, I had between 10 projects I was working on at any one time. Um, as I said, they're in a vast range, so from through life support to acquisition type. So that made it really useful in being able to bounce different ideas off different people, seeing how different stakeholders react and um, deal with information and learn a lot. I was only at uh, Talos Australia for a year and year and a half, I think. So, but learned an immense amount, um, got a, way, a wide range of skills from that. Um, and then I think me and my partner, now wife, decided we wanted to do some traveling and um, decided that Europe was the, the best place for that. So we, we packed up and went over to the UK for, for some time where I met you two. Um, Lucky you. I know. I know. Highlight of your career, yeah. Yeah, Tell absolutely. Change changed my life. <laughs> well <laughs> No, so we um I guess going over to the UK, I thought life was going to be all peachy. I had this this newfound skill in project planning and I know there was lots and lots of advertisements in in uh for jobs over there for project planning. Um Landed in the UK, realised it wasn't as straightforward as just getting a job in project planning. There was these things called NEC contracts that I'd never had any idea about. Um, and that really, it, it kind of adjusted the way I had to think about things as well. Um, so anyway, I spent, I think, three months searching for jobs in the UK, which was a load of fun. Um, savings went out the window at that point, but UK is an expensive place to live when you're looking for work. But anyway, so I had a few connections, I guess, still in Talos, and they got in touch with me and they employed me for um, for the work on four lines modernization. So it was really great. That was a, a huge project that I was very interested in, even though I had no rail experience whatsoever. So what's the, can you give us a brief on, on what that project is and why it's so significant? Yeah, I, I guess this that project is 
a really, really, really big resignaling program. So they're transforming the oldest lines on the London Underground. We're talking, you know, 100 plus years old. Some of the the lines were built ago. And some of the, the technology that they have on those lines is still at that, you know, sort of state. Um, so they're, they're taking all that technology off and putting brand new signaling technology on that's fully digitalized automatic train control through these four lines um, on a really piece of complex rail. So you said you're talking about the London Underground and, you know, every brick that you drill into to try and put an asset on has something behind it or some sort of heritage or, you know, um, so, yeah, extremely complex. And that's, I think, what what drew me to it was I've learned this over the last, you know, I guess I think at that point, what are we, there's about, must have been about six or seven years I'd been working in sort of planning informally, informally. And now, like, to do something that's this big, this complex, this, that kind of magnitude was a real draw card for me. Mm. So, yeah, hadn't ever worked on a project where I had to be a planner with more than one planner on the project. I think that was a real difference in um, in how you work and you operate. You had to fit into a planning team, which is which is harder than it sounds, I guess, for so many reasons. It's like timing and coordination of um, of the planning updates and making and sure everything's sharing. You, you and sharing. Share. Yeah, absolutely. You you can't just have your own little scope that you you know exactly what everything is and where it lives. It's it's all coordinated, and it has to be uh, a slick machine, so to speak, to to get through every month. So. That really, that really drew me in, I think, as well as the the travel around Europe. That was a side, side benefit. Um, but yeah, so started to learn a lot about big complex projects really quickly in that environment. Um, on a project like that, I think we've we've had a a real laugh over the years. I think because you know this is where we both met. I met you both. Um, but it's not a it's not a learning ground. It's by far a you know if if you had to if you had to sort of put it it's like a mosh pit of the the project planning world. It's it's chaos. It's anarchy. It's you know you you have to you have to back yourself and kind of know what you're doing in a, in a role like that because it moves so quickly. And I didn't quite grasp that when I when I caught the role and yeah, it was, it was a very steep learning curve, which I'm sort of, thankfully I was up for and forever thankful for as well um, because of the speed at which I had to upskill to that. What do you, what do you think you, I mean, obviously you mentioned that it's a, it's chaotic and it's anarchy and, you know, big projects are, there's a lot going mm. on. The pace is fast um thankfully you had the the foundational experience to deal with that Mm -hmm. what would you say your the biggest skills you learned as a planner or even in project controls on 4lm Mm -hmm. 
uh, was. Uh, it sounds sounds weird, but talking to people, I think, is the biggest thing that I learned. Um, planners, planners around the world have to get information out of people that don't really want to give them information. I think that's the the summary of it. Um, that's always the challenge I found in a planning role. It's, and it's not that they don't want to give it to you, but a lot of people think it's uh, academic or they think it's just uh, a job that they have to do in the background. It doesn't, it doesn't provide, it doesn't put assets in the ground. It doesn't, it doesn't get the trains running. And to some degree, they're absolutely right. It doesn't. Um, mm. But when, when it's required, when they need to, when they need the guidance on what to do next, when there's a, you know, some sort of commercial debate, it's always the place that they come back and look to in that data control within project planning and, and cost control and risk and those those fundamental aspects of project management. Um, so I think that that was the key for me was, and I think as a, you know, as an Aussie moving over to the UK, it somewhat lends a little bit to break down the, to break that barrier down with people. Yeah. I think that's always a, there's always a good icebreaker or was the, you know, the guy from the other side of the world that this Being fascinating foreign. place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the UK, everybody's got a, a relative or a friend or a, somebody that that packed up and moved to Australia to live the better life or something along those lines. So they're always happy to try and, and chat about it or they've, they've come over to Australia themselves. So we have quite a close connection and um, we share a lot with the UK, between the UK and Australia in terms of heritage. So it was quite easy to, one, I guess, get the get the humour and the, the um, I guess, environment, the culture was very similar, as well as having been just a, a general icebreaker was always good and that, that helps when you're to bring people's shields down there. Their layer of protection comes down pretty quickly when you can just have a chat about something else. So I think that really helped. I think that was a something that I could build relationships quite quickly and they would then give me information so that I could do my job better, but also learn. Like I, as I said, I had no idea what a, what a train signaling program ever looked like. I'd worked on simulators and aircraft engines and, you know, avionics equipment. I, I didn't know what a train did. I knew I got on it at one station and hopped off at the next, but that was about all I knew about trains. So, um, they would actually spend some time and teach me these, you know, even simple things like what what these acronyms are. Like uh, mm. you both know the the train the the transport industry is filled with acronyms. Same as defence, same as aircraft, same as every other industry, I'm sure. But there's there's a lot that you need to take in and a lot of it's different ones. A, it's learning a new language, isn't it? It yeah. is. Yes, yes. And people speak at that higher language. Um, when you first walk into these positions. So they, they immediately speak with this jargon and uh, like, to be honest, French was more, 
<laughs> understandable than what I was saying to start with. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a really um, steep learning curve that excited me, I think. Um, and as I said, there was a lot more formality in a big project like that, be it for right or wrong. There was ways that they did things that made a lot of sense. There was ways they did things that didn't make so much sense, but that's okay. We we learn from them as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of spent the first, I guess, couple of years in that planning role just taking everything in, I guess, on transport, on the way in which things happen in these big, big projects. Um, so, yeah, the first two years were immense in learning that sort of stuff. Um, then, then I kind of took a, I guess, I started to take a step up and do a bit more leadership, I think, um, working with smaller teams in that environment, same project, just, you know, starting to guide other planners on how to do things and bring him along on that ride because I guess it was, as I said, it wasn't, we know it wasn't really a, an environment for learning. So people needed to be, I guess, nurtured a bit more in that environment at times. So I tried to help with some of that. Um, also gaining exposure a bit more to senior management. Um, and yeah, just developing those different skills I suppose, starting to get into the softer skills of um, project controls, PMO in general, um, stepping more into the governance side of, of rather than the doing. So setting up the procedures and the, the policies that we then work towards to, to guide everybody in a general direction and how do we do that. Um, yeah, so... So starting to step into this new world that I obviously had engaged with from the from one side of it, but never had to actually change and manipulate and control, I think, and be responsible for was mm. was probably the was the significant step. Um, and trying to take accountability of that. Um, because before that wasn't something that you know, I, I was responsible for I had to follow what they said. I had to, you know, procedures were there for a reason. I I worked in those bounds, um, challenged them when I need to. But in general, that, you know, as you said, we had a few debates, Dale, over the years. But it's easy from it's easy from the planning side or the, you know, that's I can call it how it is as a as a planner and say, no, nah, that's wrong. Um, but you don't really see what the, the the overarching reasons are. You see it from a, a theoretical perspective. So very much so, I think our debates along that that journey helped with both of you. I think I've, you know, you always learn something every time we have a debate. I, I'm picking up the subtleties in in different ways people do things. So then adjusting, I guess it, it's about I, I'm, never, uh, I'm never fixed in my views in these perspectives. I like to listen and more than talk, as you both know, 
think so. Um, by listening, I pick up a lot, and that adjusts my my outlooks going forward to uh, to something that's more reasonable. I think more balanced, more you know central to to how we do things. So that that really helped, I think, in that moving into the the management governance of um, a PMO. Um, so yeah, I think that's where the the next level of learning started to come in for me is that that space which I'm still kind of sitting in trying to understand it, and I think there's a lot more learning to be done in there that's that's far beyond my um, you know it'll take me a long time to get there, but that I guess I had some really unique characters along this um, journey that that helped. I think with very different viewpoints. Um, in rail, there's always the very, you know, um, this is how it's been done for a hundred years, and this is why it's been done. And I like to, you know, as much as that is the the conservative sort of approach. Like, I love hearing about that. I I I like to understand history and what that meant. Um, I like to understand where the industries evolved from so that we don't try to redo something that's, you know, not going to work or has to go through some sort of level of change to get us to the right place or we understand at least that the concerns that people have in in moving in a certain direction. So, you know, those those kind of debates and those, those conversations are really important um, to framing this learning of, of project controls, I think, in, in my instance, they were anyway. I think we needed to deal with so many different um, from, you know, installation that's very much, you know, trade-based, which I understand, which I get, which I can communicate easily with, uh, to software, which I didn't have any clue, you know. I think I still don't. There's zeros and ones and that's, as far as I know, but they do things in a very different way. So they, they, they look at different methodologies. They manage projects in a totally different way um, that I had to get used to uh, and change and adapt and evolve to understand. And that's really where, you know, the role. So moving, moving on through PMO project controls management at that point, I think was, really useful for me to, to have these, you know, difficult conversations to get my point across to, to understand other people's perspectives was really useful. Uh, and then I guess the other, the other aspect of that was starting to deal with more, um, I guess, client interactions in this space. I think that puts a different spin on PMOs uh, entirely because what you know in PMO is data is everything, I guess, in, in project controls. We rely on the data we have at hand. But it's not always the same data that, you know, ends up with the client at the same time as well. So we have these, you know, conversations about, contracts and where we are where they think we are where we are what 
you know, they're challenging how we do things, we're challenging how they do things, and there's a there's politics involved at that level. So it's another, I guess, I started, you know, having to worry about this other aspect of project controls that, that's not something I really ever had to deal with. A, a trade isn't the most, um, you know, politically fired up, you know, environment. It's, it's very much, you know, everybody's like just matey-matey. It's not, it's not political in, in the way that, that this aspect is with. So still trying to understand it, but dealing with that workplace politics and, um, you know, people's bias to what they know, what their allegiances are, is is a really challenging environment that you know ended up getting involved in. I'm not saying I dislike it, but sometimes it's a bit over the top. Like I'm happy to deal with it, but you know, just so just trying to pick up on that and trying to you know work out ways to, um, I guess, bring people down to the same level, have conversations that we can find common ground and build on that and in those kind of aspects to dealing with more heated situations or differences in opinions and was I think, I think you're right um a large part of it and you've mentioned how you know chaotic and um, fast-paced it was and complex and all of that was a melting pot for different emotions and as you say allegiances and political uh whatever you want to call it game playing um but it's fascinating because when you're you're chatting there i i was thinking and you you're so right it's it's easy to throw stones when you're not responsible or accountable for something a process perhaps right yeah it's easy to go well that's not the right decision um and then i don't know if you remember we often used to offer those people that said well that's not right offered them the opportunity to come and be a part of the conversation and the yep. amount of people that shy away from it <laughs> when you offer them Absolutely. that opportunity is astounding, actually. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's quite interesting. And the fact that you actively put yourself in that situation, I think, is a, is a good lesson to take away from people is, you know, unless you're willing to actually put your neck on the line, you know, um, p- perhaps give the people that are making decisions a, a bit of slack, right? Um and, and, and not flack. <laughs> um, and and, and it, it, it's a really tough um, um, gig to to pull off um, in the day. And I, I think it's so fascinating. And Val and I are both, you know, trying to be as quiet as possible, just listening to your story because it's so fascinating. But not only that, it's bringing back a lot of memories because we, we shared, particularly in this last section that you're just mentioning, we shared mm. a lot of the same um, experiences together and, and, and we discussed that. Um, and, yeah. and we're just agreeing with you, um, and, and it's so so fascinating. Um, but but sorry, mm-hmm. not not to to bring you forward too no, much. But but um, from there, then you're now finding yourself back in Australia. Is that right? What what? I wonder if you can talk about that transition um, back over. Yeah, back, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so at the back of, I'm going to say, a very successful four years in the UK, I think it done wonders for my career and I'm still forever thankful for what um, Talis and 4LM was and, and what it's taught me. So I came back and got married in October last year um, 
and we kind of decided that it's, it's probably, you know, the right time to to head back down under and, you know, evolve back into our our um, you know our home home country, close to family, all those sorts of things. So yeah, came back. I think Mace offered me a a position um, down here and more than happy to come back and and try it out i i kind of stepped into a different role i think here again it's very much heavily based around reporting i think and how to get those stories across to senior management and that's been a really different journey again so coming back into an environment that's i'm going to say like a, a replica it's pretty much spot on what 4LM was, I think, back in Australia. So that's kind of a, it made me feel like I was, you know. <laughs> home away from change. home. <laughs> it was a home away from home. Yeah, so that, it made it quite easy, actually, because, you know, the acronyms were were pretty much similar, the things that people talk about, the same, the goal of the project, the outcome, the scope was so similar that I could immediately relate to um, everything that was going on. And some of the challenges were exactly the same here as what they are in the UK. And the political sphere around transport projects, are it, it seems to be, you know, very, very similar. So that made it quite easy to move into a role like this and, and quite easy to, as I said, it, it's a role that's more focused around reporting, but it's, easy to tell a story when you know what people want i think that that's where it is like these agendas are similar these political games or games political positionings are quite similar across the two projects and being able to sort of create these reports that are quite interactive with people and being able to understand what the project's doing in any given time and and hopefully bringing down some of those misconceptions um, about where projects are at, what they what needs to be done at any given time and, you know, tries to tell a story through data rather than um, viewpoint of somebody. Uh, so it's been a really interesting journey. I've learned a lot about databases and data and Power BI and uh, all sorts of different, like, interesting project uh, programs. And as I said, I don't know much about software in that kind of environment, but learned a hell of a lot with some um, with a cool young team that's been able to bring me up on both pop culture and, you know, <laughs> software and all sorts of random facts worked out that I'm way more of a hipster than I ever thought I was apparently. So yeah. <laughs> that's why you, you, you fit well in Melbourne, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, do you find now that um, you got a bit of a team that you're primarily doing more of that communication leadership type work? And if you could, for the listeners at least, what do you think are the most important things of a leader of a team? to work on yeah um absolutely i think look the the team the team that i've got is great because they're 
willing and happy to learn and be pointed in the right direction. They just want to get things done. And that is really, really great. Um, and harnessing that it is around communication. I think um, that is, that is the key to any manager is being the ability to communicate, um, bring people along, I guess that, is very evident in getting in getting stuff done. It's not about, unfortunately, it's not about how good your project plan is as much as I love, you know, and that's my um, skill, I suppose. It's about how you communicate that plan that you've put together because in reality, um, these techniques that we use are a point in time and they're a, they're a simulation. Everything's a simulation of what we're going to do bring that simulation to life is through management and communication and being able to give people that vision of what's happening, how to get it over the line, what the, what the critical points are, that story. And, and, and that's the, I think that's the key thing in making sure these, you know, that, that is a good leader, I think. So that, and, EQ, I think, is the other thing. I mean, just that that empathy, that understanding, putting yourself in different in somebody else's shoes is always as we as I guess you touched on Dale just before in the in your flashback. It's about from both sides. It's not it's not um you know being in the the planning role and and, and having that debate upwards and not doing anything about it. It's also about being in your, the leadership role and not understanding you know. What your what your team wants, what your team needs, um, those aspects are really key too. So it's both sides of the coin. Um, don't, yeah, have that EQ to be able to think what, where are they coming from? What do they need? What do they want? What are their you know general hygiene needs? Make sure they're met, um, and try to build them up and bring them along for the ride. I think is key. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I thought you were quoting a Christina Aguilera song there for a second, but then you came back and... Oh, talked. really? Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a girl wants, what a girl needs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's not much advice, of a singer, though. mate. That's not yeah. in my skill set. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you down the karaoke bar. Don't worry. Thanks, Justin. That's really good insight. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. He's, he's very hipster, isn't he? Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Justin, we could probably spend another hour um, going through your career because there's so much because we could backtrack and, and, and perhaps it's for another time and another pod and go through what you spoke yeah. about. You spoke about so much. You spoke about um, learning from failure, right? Um, and, and that's probably a pod in its own. Uh, you, you spoke about, you touched on resource loading and cost loading and critical paths and you could go into <laughs> scheduling and you know, we, could, we could really go into yeah. scheduling and planning and, and, and that'd be great too. Um, but you also spoke about changing roles, um, progressing upwards, how your view changed along your career. And I think that's really insightful for those listening out there as well. Um, I just want, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, yeah, because too. we haven't, we, yeah, we haven't had a story, um, in a while. Um, it, it's been mainly focused around topics and I think it's mm -hmm. really important and fascinating that people do share their stories because there's a lot of people out there going, well, what, what, what are my options? What are my alternatives? How do I go about it? And the more insight we can get into people's stories, 
um, the, the the better for 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 others out there that are struggling. So really, really appreciate your time on that. And um, before um, we head towards the end of the pod, do you have any final words that you want to leave us with, Justin? No, I think just just going on that. I I, I guess um, don't get too. All I'll say is don't ever get too focused on you know a role or a or where you want to be. I think definitely have that in your mindset but focus on the skills to get there I think is always my key message it's not about and the role will come I think it's about building your knowledge building and through learning through failure through all those techniques I think that we've touched on in the last hour it's about building them skills to then get the role that you want it's not about so have a role as an aim but don't don't uh, get too carried out on getting there. Get focus on the skills around it that you need to get there, and then it will come. I think that's my main sort of outcome from that. Well put, well put, and totally agree. Well, any final thoughts from you? No, as you said, Dale, it's been great to listen to Justin and talk about his war stories, and you know he kept it very diplomatic. Um, I'm sure after a whiskey or two, you'll tell us with more um, expletives. Um, but it's been <laughs> not, great. Not at 8 a.m. <laughs> not at 8 a.m. No, probably not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to have, as, as Dale said, it's great to have um, someone's personal journey because I think that helps people listening that it doesn't necessarily have to be um, high school, university, and then into the workforce. You can, you can um, go through the experience route and you can come from different industries um, and you can go across industries and still learn. And I think back to that point you mentioned as well, and I did the, around curiosity and having the, the right mindset to understand the problem set. And you mentioned skills as well, which I think uh, is bang on. So yeah, thanks for your time today, Justin. Well, folks, that's all we have time for on this episode, but it doesn't have to stop here. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for bonus bits and our website for a link to our online community with all our expert guests. Support our charities and access our blogs and previous podcasts at projectchatterpodcast.com. A big thanks to our guest, Justin Rice. Thanks as always to Val. And thank you all for listening. Hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Till then, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. It's bye for now. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.